Mark uh, prayed that we'd be free of distractions. <clears throat> if you hear distractions in that corner, those are our grandchildren. <laughs> and for those of you know our daughter Rachel, husband Alan, Judah, and Isaiah are with us for a week or two, so if you want to catch up with them, well, you can do so right after the service. If you've been coming in the last couple of months, I probably haven't met you. So my name is Mike Halp, and I'm one of the elders here, and I've been on what I called a sabbatical. The church leadership and church graciously afforded Kathy and I, but I was talking to someone before we left, and they said, what's a sabbatical? And I said, well, we're taking an extended leave away from work. We're going to a nice place in the mountains. We're going to get off our normal work routine, do some reading, probably lounge a bit, a little relaxing, get some work, some study done, and they said, that sounds like a vacation. And I said, well, I, I don't know. Either way, I'm good. Whatever You call it whatever you want, but that's what we're doing. So to give you guys just a little bit, this, is, this won't be long enough to be boring, okay? So this is our travel log. So we did get some work done, mostly Kathy, not me. And uh, she got her next draft for her kids' book series, George, written up there in the mountains. And we were in Colorado, by the way, Grand Lake. And we took some lovely hikes. It's just one of my favorite places in the world. Kathy's too. Some fly fishermen down there. Uh, wildlife up close and personal, for sure. And our favorite, those moose were as close as Joe is to me. And uh, we saw, I think, over 40. The weather was absolutely splendid. And there's three big lakes up there, which it's just so pretty. And uh, Jordy, faithful, faithful Jordy, kept us, kept us going the whole time. And uh, that's a lodge above Grand Lake. And drive up the mountains to the Continental Divide was lovely. And then we came home. <laughs> yeah. Now that's actually, I knew you'd like that. That's actually not related to coming home, though. That, that's actually what we'll be talking about in just a minute. But before getting into the message, I did want to say, actually, a couple things. I'll be brief because I don't want to uh, I don't want to miss my time on the message itself uh, Kathy and I celebrated our 37th wedding anniversary July 5th and I've had these whiskers for 15 years or more and I wondered what I looked like without them so I shaved July 5th that morning and this is no kidding my wife opens the door and she looks at me and then she does a double take and she screamed <laughs> I, she looked at me again she screamed again and she said, what did you do? She used to like my face. I was going to show you. <laughs> I was going to show a picture, but she didn't take one. So, just kidding. Sort of. But no pictures. Also, we visited a couple churches there. Uh, you know, it's fun to go to another church just to see what God's up to. Different flavor, emphasis, whatever. And we were in a church very much like Lion and Lamb, very much like Lion and Lamb in Grand Lake. This is not a joke, by the way. And uh, everything was great. They were very cordial. They welcomed us. We had great conversations. Teaching was similar. Worship songs were similar. Everything was similar. But, you know, it was like, it's okay. But it's not home. And then we were here last week sitting up here. Bill started us in worship, and it's like, oh, we're home. I identify with Dorothy for sure. Hey, I wanted to say especially thanks to the elders for this. We'd actually talked about this almost a year ago last fall, and it was Larry, especially thanks to Larry Stewart, wherever Larry's at. 
You know, Larry just came on. Larry came on full-time in June, and we left in June. And Larry got everything off Mike's plate and then some, so the events this summer, the ones coming up. By the way, I hope you do make time to come on that Saturday, the 20th anniversary. It'll be a fun time, and it's an open house to the neighborhood. And even if you don't want to come for any other reason, come to be an encouragement and a witness to any of the neighbors who come. And then we'll have a special different service on that Sunday, September 3rd. Okay. So back to this image. So this is sort of where we're going this morning. Let me give you a few scenarios. I hope you have a study sheet, by the way, because we'll be using those throughout. If you don't have one, there's some in the, in the lobby, I'm sure. So let me give you a few different scenarios, and that'll kick us off. So the first scenario is this. Mary, made-up person, made-up name, Mary call, hopes John calls her for a date. John calls Mary for a date. Life's grand. She got what she hoped for. Second scenario is this. Mary hopes John calls her for a date. John doesn't call for a date. Mary resigns herself to life without a date with John. Life goes on. Third scenario is this. Mary hopes for a date with John. She dreams of a date with John. She longs for a date with John. John doesn't call. She has no date with John. She despairs. She hides in a corner. She gets off social media. She doesn't take phone calls. Life is over because John didn't call and she has no date with John. In the second scenario, Mary has a hope that's not going to be realized. And so she resigns herself to life without her hope being realized. In the third scenario, Mary's response to life without her hope being fulfilled is despair. It's despair. And so what we're talking about this morning is hope, despair, and resignation. And this all comes from some of the reading I got done this summer. And by the way, I did read several books, and I've got notes and stuff prepared for all kinds of things coming up. And guys, this is going nowhere. I was on. Thank you. Uh, nope, too far. Thank you. Should this be working? Let me see, guys, if I've got a red light, make sure I'm on. Okay. We'll try again in a minute. Um, this is a book, uh, Spiritual Emotions, The Psychology of Christian Virtues, is one I read this summer, Robert Roberts. I'd never heard of him before. He was referenced in another book I was reading. He's been around a long time, and if psychology sort of as a term scares you, don't let it on this book. Very biblically focused. To me, a very, very helpful book. And he talks about these elements, things like hope and despair and resignation, and sort of the moods we live in and out of. And, and on my assessment, um, we needed a sabbatical in part because Mike was uh, somewhat burned out. And sort of how do you look at life and things that didn't work out the way you wanted? How do you make adjustments, etc.? It was very helpful. To today's issue, talking about hope, despair, and resignation, just some things thinking about this going in. What kinds of hopes should we be entertaining? Hopes are desires, they're longings, there's things we want to happen in the future. What kind of hopes should we be entertaining? And within the, the realm, let's say, of hopes that are legitimate in some way, they're not illegitimate hopes, how should we think about ho how much hope we place on any given thing, any given desire? What does that look like? What does resignation to failed hopes look like? And I'll try and be very gentle in, in saying this. 
But we also want to come away uh, with this view. And so maybe somebody here this morning feels like they're in despair, so I want to be very careful, because I've been there too, and probably all of us have at some point. Uh, We want to come away also seeing that despair is a sin unworthy of a Christian who knows God as Father, Christ as Savior, and is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, in saying that, all of us sin in many ways, James says, so if we sin in despair, I'm not saying anybody's worse sinner than anyone else if we find ourselves in despair. But we need to come to the conclusion that despair, if we call it depression, that kind of depression born of despair, we need to understand that's actually not what God wants for us. We need to find a way to resign ourselves to dashed hopes. In fact, usually to redefine what we're hopeful for and on and get back in resignation in the land of the living. So now we want to define terms uh, so that we're on the same page. Hope is a desire, a positive expectation, something I want but I don't yet have. Hope is always forward-looking. It's always a desire not yet achieved or realized. Despair is to be utterly at a loss without hope, despondent. We would say someone in despair, it's like life is not worth living. I don't care about anything. And resignation is acceptance of things as they are instead of as desired. It's acquiescence to reality. I resign myself away from that hope. I surrender my hope of that hope being fulfilled. I resign myself to that. I change the way I'm looking at the future. And by the way, if this theme, if this message isn't applicable to you today, that's fine, but it will be at some point. Or it will be helpful for you to know some of this related to a friend. So if this doesn't apply to you today, that's fine. Uh, Put that in your file cabinet and go from there. Guys, I'm just going to have to cue you because I don't think this is working at all, okay? Um, So hope... we are creatures of hope, thanks. We're creatures born for hope, right? We, we, there's things we desire. There's things we hope for. There's things we long for. Our heart has affection for different kinds of things. And it runs the gamut. If I'm a kid, I say, I hope I get a puppy, maybe, or a cat, or whatever it is. Or I might say, I'm a student, and I hope I get good grades. Or Mike's favorite is, I hope I have a tasty meal when I come home. Or, I, or I'm, a, I'm a graduate, I hope I get a job, a good job. Or I'm sick, I hope I get an extension to my life. This gets a little closer to home for some of us, by the way. Or troubles around the corner, I can see it coming, and I hope I'm spared tragedy. So hopes run the gamut, right? That's true for us. Big hopes, little hopes. That's true for everybody in the Bible too, isn't it? If you have a study sheet, I think I've got a list of these on there. The term hope in the English translation, about 200 times in the Bible, about four or five Hebrew terms translated hope in the Old Testament, one key one in the New Testament translated that, about 100 in the Old Testament, a little over 80 in the New Testament. It's a common theme. So things like this. Job, you remember, loses everything in the book of Job. He hopes for good. We'd say we hope for good in the future. Job 30, verse 26. Israel, in a day when they'd returned from Babylon, they're back in the land of promise, and yet they've sinned again. And they don't want the hammer of God's judgment to fall again. They hope for the mercy of God when they've repented again. Proverbs 19.18 tells parents that they should train, discipline, correct, chastise their children in hope that that godly oversight and leadership will actually produce good fruit in the lives of their children. They should... They should uh, parent with hope. 
uh, Isaiah 59.11, frankly for me, a time Isaiah uh, prophesied of much like our own day, in a time when Isaiah describes it as truth has fallen in the streets, Isaiah hoped for justice. And, and by the way, in our land, justice becomes more and more difficult to find, doesn't it? Justice. Not an outcome in a legal suit, but justice. Luke 23.8, Herod hoped Jesus would perform a hat trick for his benefit, his pleasure. And last, and actually we'll wind down on this last hope, which is the place we end up wanting to hang our hat as far as hopes go. Paul said in Acts 26 he was on trial for the hope of the resurrection. So you get the picture. Hopes can be really little and insignificant. They can be huge and major. They can be set in time or they can be eternal. And all of us are going to have some variation on all those themes in all likelihood. Some hopes are so insignificant that you and I probably don't even think about resigning ourselves to them, to life without that hope. I'm coming home, I hope there's a great meal ready. I get home, I find out it's burned. I resign myself to cheese and crackers. No big deal. I don't even think about it. Small hopes. Dash, no big deal. Resigning myself, okay. But what if I have cancer and my hope is to survive cancer, to be there for a spouse or for children or for the sake of others? That's a different kind of hope, different set of stakes. How about this one? What if I hope my grown son or daughter comes to faith in Christ and at this point they haven't? That's a different kind of hope, isn't it? The stakes, much different. Some hopes easy to resign ourselves to if they don't happen. Other hopes, not at all easy to adjust to, unfulfilled. So, related specifically to the kinds of things we hang our hat on regarding future hopes, the big ones, not the little ones, thinking here of the big ones, what do you do when the big hopes fail? And, and let's just assume they're not illegitimate hopes, but they're godly hopes. To what degree does your life or mine depend on a hope being fulfilled related to our ability to continue to thrive and live for the glory of God? What do you do when hopes are failed? The big ones, not the little ones. What does that look like? Uh, I know a pastor in another church across the country, a great teacher. He's in a great church. He has a lovely wife. They have, uh, I think it's four or five kids that are grown. So this guy, uh, there's his life to think about, his wife's, the children, uh, teenage children, I think, still going to school and still at home. But he, his life also affects a couple thousand people at least every week when he preaches, he's counseling, etc. So this guy in a biblical counseling conference tells a group of, let's say, 400 people, he says, now FYI, he's talking about suffering, responses to suffering. Uh, he tells us that his two oldest children in their 20s absolutely reject the gospel. They were raised in his house. They were Christians. He, he was in seminary. They didn't it's not that they didn't hear the gospel. It's not that they didn't grow up reading the Bible and seeing their parents pray and being in church. But these two oldest kids, they grew up and they've told their parents, we, we don't believe in Jesus and we don't want this. Now, we would all agree, right? If you're talking to a Christian parent, is that not the only thing related to your kids that you absolutely hope for? Because everything else, you know, time on the earth short, everything else doesn't matter compared to that. If his ability 
to resign himself to life without the knowledge of his children's salvation, if that knowledge is required by him to live life for Christ, where does that leave him? This is a godly hope. It's a biblical hope. It's what we all hope for. If it doesn't happen, can he resign himself to life without that? He has to, doesn't he? If he's going to be able to live to the glory of God, he has to resign himself to at least that conversion hasn't happened. And even if it does, I might not even be here to see it. I could die, or my child could die, apart from my knowledge that they got saved. Can I live with that failed hope? It's a good hope. It's a godly hope. But I don't control it. And unless God's spoken specifically to you, and I know there's, there's discussion on Proverbs and some other things about train up a child and guarantees, and... and I hold those things lightly. If God's spoken very clearly, then I want to hold on to that. It's a little less clear. I want to be careful that I'm not setting my hope on something God's not committed himself to. What do I do? How do I resign myself to life in that way? And this is the thing. If you come away with nothing else this morning, come away with this. A key means of measuring how healthy our hopes are, and this is on your study sheet, is to ask this question. Is my faith intact and can I continue to trust God and live for Him if this hope isn't realized. Is my faith intact? Can I live to the glory of God as a Spirit-filled, Christ-focused person on earth if that hope isn't realized? Something as significant as the salvation of a child or a spouse or whatever it would be for us. Uh, Robert Roberts in his book on spiritual emotion says this, regarding to the kinds of hope we tend to entertain. He says, the object of our hope, now here he's talking about the ultimate Christian hope, and that's where we'll wind down. The object of our hope is eternal. But our hope itself, where we tend to live with our hopes, is in many of us the very opposite, not eternal. It's an up and down thing, shifting with our circumstances and our moods, with the company we keep, the books we happen to be reading. After feeling it in church, I went to church and I'm pumped up, I'm jazzed, I feel hopeful, it sometimes dissolves out in the world. Magnificent resolutions to have our hope in God alone, which is where they ultimately need to be, are followed in a few minutes by the old patterns of trusting in our schemes and the probabilities of finite prospects, the things where our heart tends to land. Temporary, transitive hopes. And doing our best, and I like this, to conceal from ourselves the blatant deception in which we are indulging. God's given me no promise, but man, this is what I hope happens, and I'm not open to any other suggestion. It's got to be this way. My hope has to be fulfilled this way. How are we doing? Oh, good. So there are some things that as hopes are 100%, we can have confidence. And again, that's where we'll wind down. But most other kinds of hopes... You have to be careful about how much of your weight, how much of your life you engage in those. If you take your study sheet and shift, thank you, yep. So this is not primary Sunday school and Jesus is not the answer to everything on your study sheet, okay? So when you look at this, this is for your benefit, not mine. We don't turn these in when we're done, okay? This is just for you. So if you think, you just stop and think. If I'm just thinking in the short term, 
what do I hope happens in the next six to 12 months? It could be, it could be next week if you want. It doesn't have to be. But just in the near future. If I say, what kinds of things do I hope occur? Just write those down. What, what is my heart set on? What are some of my expectations, my desires? What might those be? And some, the key ones, right? Things that tend to be on our mind, tend to be on our heart. Things we probably tend to pray about as well. What might some of those be? Write those down. And then longer term, <clears throat> I'm looking down the corridor of my life. I'm thinking about the, the, the little bit more distant future maybe. What kinds of things might I hope happen there? You know, if a student, it, it might be I finish school or I get a good job. Or we're a young couple, we hope to buy a house. Or I want to start a new business. Or we want to have kids. Or we want to get married. It, this could be anything. And probably for all of us, we'd have answers all over, the, all over the spectrum. That's fine. But just think, for you, what kind of hopes might we be entertaining right now? Write that down. Guys, shift, go ahead. Now, the, the, the response to hopes, either deferred or failed, for some of us tends to be despair. And in despair, um, I have essentially lost hope for living. Any significant reason for my extended life is gone. I don't care about living. There's nothing here big enough significant enough to get my motivation up to say, I want to invest in life. I'm in despair. Nothing matters. Hopeless. If the hope that fails us is significant enough, despair is one of the places we tend to go. Big hopes have a different typical response for us than little hope. And let me give you a couple of examples from Scripture. The first is this. If you've been in despair, you know what it feels like. There's a couple of examples in Scripture of this. 1 Samuel 25, uh, very briefly, is the, is the story of Nabal, who's a very wealthy guy, rancher. He has sheep and goats, very wealthy guy up near Carmel. And David, and this is before David's a king. He's just a guy out in the wilderness hiding from King Saul with a band around him. And Nabal comes to shearing time. And so that's like a farmer bringing in the crops. This is a time of celebration and feasting. And so that's what he's doing. Now David and his men have been protecting Nabal's flocks and shepherds throughout the year. So David sends some guys to Nabal and says, Hey, would you just send along whatever your hand finds? You know, some food, some wine, whatever, some cheese, whatever you might have. Would you send that along? Now this is Nabal's hope. Nabal despises David. He hates him. Absolutely. His hope is on communicating how much he despises David to David. So when David's men come, Nabal says, I don't know who David is. I don't know where he's from, and I don't give food to those kind of people. Who is David? What is David? He's nothing. He's nobody. That's what he communicates. David's men's leave. Of course, if you know the story, Abigail, Nabal's wise and lovely wife, preemptively gets a bunch of stuff, takes them to David, says, please don't go do what you're going to do. Kill my husband, all the men. Please don't do that so David doesn't. Well, Nabal's going to find out, right? So the story tells us this. This is 1 Samuel 25, 37. Now this is how much, and this is a negative hope. This can go either way. Positive hope, hope this happens. Negative hope, don't want that to happen. This is a negative hope. So 1 Samuel 25, 37. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, the feast is over, 
His wife told him these things. Hey, by the way, I saved your life and the lives of all the men here. I took that stuff to David. Listen to how it describes Nabal's response. His heart died within him. His heart died within him. And he became like a stone. That's despair. All I care about is dissing David. And now my wife has gone and blessed him. My hopes are perished and my heart has turned to stone within me. I'm beyond feeling. I'm beyond sensitivity. I have no hope for life. And if you remember the end of the story, several days later, God takes his life. But that's a pretty good description of despair. My heart is like a stone. Nothing affects it. I don't care about anything. I don't want anything. I've I've died inside. Now, there's another kind of despair reflected in Ecclesiastes 2. This is verses 17 through 20. And this is another very wealthy person. This is King Solomon. And if you remember King Solomon, he's got all the wisdom and he's got all the stuff to do whatever he wants in his life. And yet Ecclesiastes tells us the kind of frustration and futility and vanity that's connected to a life with hopes set on the wrong things. And so if you remember in chapter 1, Solomon says, well, there's this futility to life because everything just repeats itself. So it rains, and the streams run to the oceans, and the oceans are never filled, and the rain falls again, and the streams refill, and it just goes over and over. One generation follows another. What does it matter? He said, life is like trying to grasp the wind. Vanity of vanities. Everything's circular. Nothing lasts. It's just all the same. Variations on the theme. Well, you get to chapter 2, and he uses all that wealth, and he has gardens, and he invests in all this stuff, and he's got musicians and music. His iPods, he's listening to whatever he wants. He's got singers, he's got concubines, he's got wives, he's got, he's got everything he wants, everything he can, can want. Every hope that you and I could have physically on the earth, he's got it. And what does he say about that? He says, I hated my life. It was grievous to me. It's vanity. I hated the fruits of my toil. Because he says, I've done all this, but like every other generation, I'm going to die. And all this stuff I worked for, all this good stuff, someone else is going to get. And maybe he's a jerk. And Rehoboam was a jerk. And who knows if he'll value what I've done and what this represents to me. And he says, I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Guys, this is interesting, but you've got two wealthy people. These people aren't in despair because they don't have enough. Stuff can't satisfy anybody, ultimately. These guys aren't in despair because they don't have stuff. They've got all the stuff they want. And they're still in despair. A heart of stone, indifference to all of life because there's this sense of futility. It doesn't matter anyway for Solomon. So you can have despair is one of the ways we tend to respond to hopes that have been dashed. Now, I do want to say, and again, I say this gently, I hope, um, despair is a sin. Despair is a sin. And essentially, it goes like this. If you and I despair, we are effectively saying this, whether we think it or not. We've taken some thing, some hope, again, could be fine in itself, and we've made it God. So that our God died when our hope was failed, and so we can't live because our God is dead. Despair is always a form of idolatry. Something besides God has occupied first place in our affections. Always the case, can't be otherwise. Right? Jesus says in the Gospels, if anyone doesn't, in comparison to their love for God, hate their spouse, their children, family, friends, 
He's not telling us to hate them, right, really? But it's comparison. If in comparison to our devotion, our hope on God, everybody else is a distant, distant second, he says we're out of line. We're out of line. No other hope will do. Despair is always an expression of some form of idolatry. So when we're tempted to despair, we need to ask the question, what is my heart set on? And in what way am I hanging out with my hopes and expectations in a way God never intended? Never intended. By the way, on this, if you take, uh, thinking, seeing Julie in the back, a sex trafficked person in Topeka, let's say, whose life is miserable, can they still live to the glory of God with a terrible life? They can. Can persecuted Christians who lose children and spouses and are in prison, can they still live a life to the glory of God with all the earthly hopes dashed? They can. And in fact, that's the history of the church, isn't it? So hopes, ultimate hopes, hopes that have been inadequately placed too fully on an inadequate object produce despair. So we want to be aware. Despair is to be avoided because it's idolatry. Something has taken the place God alone is meant to hold in our lives and in our hopes. And I'll say this too. Um, Job says in Job 6 that the words of someone in despair are words to the wind. Don't worry about it. You know, his friends want to come and encourage him, and he says, right now I just want to vent. Don't worry about what I'm saying. There's a place for that. If you interact with someone in despair and you hear despairing words, and your first response is, I'm going to give them the truth, I'm going to tell them what, the way things are, I'm going to tell them, get out of the hole, you know. It's like, that's probably not the thing to do. You can just sit there, you can pray for them. In fact, you could say, can I pray for you? That'd be good too. But, you, but we want to recognize for others, if we're in the pit of despair, we might just be venting in that moment. You, have you guys ever done this with your wives or your daughters? Uh, you know, where they're venting? And the key question is, now, do you want me to do anything about this, or are you just venting? Because it's a different thing, right? I'll just sit here and listen, if that's helpful. But if you want me to do something, I kind of listen in a different way. If someone's in despair, we can be there for them. Certainly pray for them. Pray with them if we can. But hold the, the words they're saying in that moment lightly, at least initially until you find out what's going on. Then you might be able to speak more clearly to that. Okay, next slide. Thank you. So pause now and look at your study sheet and if to this answer this question what areas or what issues in my life might I be tempted to despair in what areas of my life do I feel a tug to despair in and guys you, we'll all be tempted in this it's not like you won't you will be absolutely absolutely what areas might I be tempted in? Now, what you write here might be the same things you wrote earlier about your future hopes. Or they might be completely different. But most of us will feel like at some time there's something that I'm holding on to, I'm worried about. Worry and anxiety are a pretty good indication that, that we need to change the way we're thinking about something. But what are the things that I might be tempted to despair in? Write those down here. Now, the alternative, you go to the next one. Thanks. To despair is resignation. Resignation. In, in resignation, I resign myself to life without that hope. I surrender that hope. I'm going to go on living, and I don't have to have that hope fulfilled. This is one of the challenges with resignation. 
You know, if you come from some kind of business background, sports backgrounds, military backgrounds, um, those arenas tend to engender a, a failure is not an option mentality. And that's often it's a really good thing because it helps us push ourselves past limitations that aren't actually limitations. We just need to work our way through. Sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, resignation feels like surrender or defeat. It might feel like that. Things that we should resign ourselves to. They're either not going to happen, they're not going to happen now, or they're not going to happen in the way I wanted. Resignation can feel like death. I'm giving up my hope. I'm resigning myself. This isn't going to happen. And, and guys, you, we, we don't want to understate. On the front end, resignation often feels like death. But you want to be careful because resignation is actually what you need to work through that death to whatever I wanted to actually the life that God's called us to. So if I'm looking at resignation in front of me driving down the highway, it looks like death. But resignation in my rearview mirror, it looks like life, the road to life. Because what I've done is I've uncoupled myself from the thing that would hold me in the place of death. I didn't get what I wanted, so I can't live. Nope. God is still God. Christ is still Savior. I still have the Spirit. God still has things for me to do. I'm drawing breath on the earth. I can live to the glory of God. But it may require me dying to something I hoped would happen. And that's the challenge. It's to be willing to say to God, you know, we talk about consecration, we talk about surrender, but God, I give you the thing that I hope for and I leave it with you. Whatever you do with it, I'm okay. You're God. I give you the hope. I die to the hope. I surrender the hope. I resign myself to life without the hope. And you show me how to live with life as you've ordained it, as you've given it, as you've meant and set aside for me. Think about this. Uh, the person who hopes to get married and raise a family, but who is steadily, slowly growing older as a single. Are any of us here that person, or do we know that person? I've known lots of people like that, right? Is that a challenge? You know, for a lot of gals, you know, the average age for marriage has just risen dramatically. In less than 40 years, it's gone up seven years, uh, seven years, from 23 and 22 to 29 and 28, uh, guys and gals. If you're a woman and your childbearing years are fast declining, what does that do to your hope for marriage and children? It's an issue, isn't it? What do I do with that? The infertile couple for whom everything else is on hold until they can conceive a child. Do you know anyone like that? Or is there anyone here like that? Probably right. Man, we just want to have kids. And we've done this test. We've done that test. We've tried this treatment. We've tried that treatment. The person who aspired to some form of greatness but who resides in what they now know is just a commonplace life. I'm not going to be president of the United States. It's not going to happen. Or whatever. It's going to be this kind of life, not that. Or someone who envisions running a successful business. You could install in this slot anything you wanted. That grand hope is not going to happen. How do I resign myself to that? And you can multiply that, right? Big hopes could be godly hopes. What do I do when that hope fails? Can I resign myself to life as it is? Because if I'm going to honor, honor Christ, if I'm going to glorify God in this life, I have to. For lack of that, I can't live to the glory of God. When we resign ourselves to life without that cherished hope, life, in fact, begins again. It tends to be slow, and I don't want to minimize the degree. We're talking very briefly about a bunch of stuff this morning. The degree to which these are processes, 
Grief, typically, not always, is a process, a slow downhill walk. Uh, Resignation to life as it really is is usually a slow uphill walk. So this stuff, it doesn't happen in the blink of an eye, usually. It doesn't happen in a moment. Most of these are processes. Yeah. We want to be able to say at the end of the day with Job, which is significant, God gave, God took. Or God gives and God withholds. And God's still blessed. And I can live with that and I can honor God in that. On your study sheet here, would you go to the next one? Thanks. If you say, I've got hopes in life right now that I'm not seeing fulfilled or not in the way I want or whatever, I need to resign myself to. What might that be for us? Resignation. Life as it is, adjusting expectations and emotions and hopes What might I need to resign myself to now? Uh, With a few minutes left, and I'll have to rush through a little bit of this, uh, I want to end on on the fact that Scripture calls us to a hope, and and the truth is the hope tends to be much bigger than our other hopes. Yeah, would you give me the next one? By our very natures, we hope. We have hopes. We have expectations for the future. And, and so God doesn't deny that. He just tells us usually your hopes are on the wrong things in the wrong way to the wrong degree. But he says he has a hope that he wants us to invest in absolutely, fully, 100%. It's repeated throughout the New Testament. In fact, the, the aspect or the shadow of it at least, you'll see in the Old Testament as well. In Titus 2, Paul writes to Titus and he says, um, Salvation's appeared to all men and, and it calls us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and instead to do this. To wait for, this is expectancy, to wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. What's the Christian supposed to hope for? The the appearing, the revelation of Jesus Christ and our presence with Him. That's the hope. That's the hope Christians are called to have. Every day, 100%. 1 Peter 1 says it this way, and he's already said in this chapter, You've got an imperishable inheritance in heaven, but you've got suffering along the way. Therefore, he says, prepare your minds for action, be sober-minded, and set your hope fully. And this is the one that gets me. No limits. Don't hold back. Set your hopes fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hopes fully there. Now, I think there's a definition of this on your page someplace. I probably already passed it on my study sheet. Um, What we want to say is this. The Christian's hope is the exaltation of Jesus and our presence with Him. So whether you think in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, or 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, the Christian's hope is the return of Jesus, the trumpet, the angel shout, we join Jesus in heaven, He's in glory, we're transformed into His glorious image, we'll see Him and we'll be like Him. That's the Christian's hope. And Peter says, set your hope fully on that. You know, for most Christians, you guys ever have this conversation? I hope the Lord returns soon, but first... (laughs) I want to get married. That's the common one. Don't come back yet, Lord. Our honeymoon's around the corner. Hold off. One week. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) That's the one I hear most commonly, you know. (laughs) But but the the Christian hope 
is that Jesus is glorified, that He appears in His glory, and when that happens, we're glorified too. That's the Christian hope. And Peter says, set your hope fully on that. I want to go through Romans 5, but I'm pretty much out of time already, so let me just say this. I'll let you read Romans 5, 1 through 2 on your own. I just want to point out this. In Romans 5, 3 through 5, because this is where we, we live, um, Paul says, we rejoice in sufferings, not because he's a sadist, but because suffering is part of a process. And listen to where he says that process of suffering takes you. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. When you and I respond to suffering the way God wants us to, we, we develop endurance. We work through those challenges of life. He says endurance produces character. I become more the person God wants me to be in Christ through that process of suffering and endurance. He says character produces hope. Guys, the less character we have, the less hope we have in God's eternal things. It's the suffering. Suffering, the loss of the temporary things, frees us to lift our eyes up to the eternal hope that God always means for our heart to be set on. Suffering, we shed the hopes we can't hold that won't hold us. And our eyes get fixed on the hope that can't disappoint. That's Paul's point. So God gives us a hope that Jesus would return, that Jesus would be glorified. The rapture of the church, His reign on earth, His eternal reign in heaven, and our presence with Him. That's the Christian's hope. When we read in the New Testament, that's where we're going. Everything else should be, in comparison, a shallow little hope. Important and godly as so many of those other hopes are. It's the exaltation of Jesus and our glorious presence with Him forever. Let me close by reading this from Robert Roberts. He says, What kind of sufferings can educate us in Christian hope? It's not so much the kind of suffering that's important, but what we do with it. See if you relate to any of these. Loneliness, betrayal by family or friends, the triumph of an enemy the impotence of disease or old age, the death of a loved one, a disappointment in business or love, hatred and opposition by other people, these all can help to teach us Christian hope if only we take the right attitude towards them. That's Romans 5. He says often people don't realize how much they need God until some situation of crisis or loss gives them perceptual clarity. Isn't that a good phrase? I can see now what I couldn't see before perceptual clarity about the nature of their life. And last he says, and I think this is true, you know, when we hear things uh, in need of change, we think of other people, but he says most churchgoers, and I would say most evangelicals, and I would say most lion and lammers, most of us, are as deeply rooted in this world and thus as deeply in despair, about the way the world despairs, as those who profess no such hope, no eternal hope. We live like people who have no eternal hope. For this reason, dwelling with some pain on, an, on experiences of suffering is necessary, healthy, humbling exercise for us. We must become friends of despair, suffering the loss of the transient hope if we are to be drawn above to a genuine and heartfelt hope, far from being an exercise in morbidity or arrogance, thinking of death or nothing affects me, a deepening acquaintance with our death and with the vanity of human wishes is for our worldly hearts a needed path to perfect health. It's suffering that helps us gain clarity on what the ultimate hope is. 
Well, guys, as we're getting ready for worship, let me read this from Psalm 33. This is Psalm 33, verse 1. And guys, sorry, I forgot the other slides. Would you go through to the last one? Oh, oh, sorry, go back one. Yeah, don't, yeah, go back one if you can. So on your study sheet, can you, thank you. So do this. Honestly, this is for you, not for anyone else. So if you say, my hope for the exaltation of Christ, Christ's return, my presence with him, on a scale of one to ten is what? So the two, I'm a housewife and a mom. I have three kids under five. It's a zero right now. I don't care. Or, or it's nine. I, I, I can't wait. Or it's somewhere in between. Where is it? Just rate that one to ten. If you ask yourself this, on a daily basis, my constant hope, the things I tend to think about in a manner of hope tend to be what? Might be one thing, might be a couple things. Then go back to page one, and on the hopes you listed for the future... Rate each one of those on a 1 to 10 scale, how much your hope is on that, and compare that to your daily hope for Christ's exaltation and your presence with Him in glory. That comparison helps, okay? So Psalm 33, 1 says this, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. You guys can stand now. Shout for joy. We'll shout. They'll, they'll start us here in just a second. Shout for joy. So we want to wake up from our sleepiness, and we want to give our hearts to praise God, right? Now go to the last one, please. And listen to this. That's how Psalm 33 starts. This is how Psalm 33 winds down. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear Him, on those who hope in His steadfast love. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in You. Lord, help, help us make Jesus our eternal lasting hope. In His name, amen.